Welcome to Girls That Invest. You're joined today by your hosts, Sam and Sonia, two millennial investors who are here to help you learn about all things investing and personal finance. A very warm welcome to a newly turned 26-year-old person on the podcast, Simran Kaur. Her frontal lobe has fully developed. Can you share some insights and some wisdom, Sim? Well, it's funny that you mention that because I was so excited. I was like, my frontal lobe is fully there. I'm so excited. <laughs> my life is complete. I see things more clearly. I let things go easier. Like people will do things and I'm like, that's just like, not a me problem anymore and then it all went custard when like the week after I hit my head very hard on my frontal lobe and I feel like I've just digressed and it was so frustrating because I was walking and it was typical like millennial behavior walking on my phone looking down and I was walking into someone's gate and for some reason the like top bar of the gate was like at where my forehead was. I don't necessarily think I'm a very tall human. Like You're not. We're the same height. We're not. Anyway. I have a video of us being the same height. I am trying to let things go at 26, but you're really testing me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I come to this bar, don't look up, and I like hit my head on this middle bar very loudly. I think I'm concussed. I like turn around to my friend and I'm like, I, I'm concussed. I can't drive you home. And they're like, you're fine. Like you can drive me. <laughs> I was fine. But this morning I like touched my head and it's very sore. I don't have like a big bulge like I was expecting and it's not colored and bruised, but it's tender to touch. I just like love your friend that was like, no, you're fine. You can drive me home. The things people do for a ride home. (laughs) I mean, it was their loss if we both went down, right? Mm. But other than that, 26, pretty good. I'm so good. I spent my birthday going away for a few days with some friends, turned off my phone, would turn it on like for 10 minutes in the morning just to make sure everyone was still alive and nothing like crazy happened. And then would turn it off and just like enjoy the scenery and the nature and the people. And so it was a good start to the, I was going to say it's a good start to the year. My year starts on my birthday. Yeah, it makes sense. I think that's one of the things that I'm missing about New Zealand. It's going into New Zealand summer. So all the road trips, all the beautiful views, all the, you know, nature and just spending time with loved ones seems like a perfect way to spend your birthday. Music to my ears. It was nice. Would have been nicer if you were here, but mm. that's okay. She's in Canada. Bye. <laughs> anyway, enough about my birthday antics. I really I'm excited to talk about this week's episode with you. Before we get into the show, a huge thank you to HSBC for powering this week's episode. 80% of money media tell women to spend less and make them feel bad about money. Yet more than 67% of women want to learn about their finances and grow their wealth. We are so proud to be partnering with HSBC as they pave the way for financial well-being and diversity, which aligns with our mission of empowering women. An integral part of HSBC's mission is to empower and support each customer with their unique wealth needs, whenever and wherever they are. So whether you're at the very beginning of your wealth creation phase and taking your first steps in investing, or you're starting to think about passing your wealth and values to the next generation, HSBC can connect you to global opportunities at every stage of your wealth journey. Jump onto the link in the description to find out more. All right, back to the show. 
We are breaking down the four takeaways of psychology of money. And if you are a person that is in the financial scene, which means like you're interested in personal finance or you've got friends that are interested, you've 110% seen this book. If you're like, no, Simran, I haven't. You have. It's that book which looks like it's got a brain on the front of it with a white background, but it's not a brain. It's like money notes that look like a brain. And it's all about how our psychology and our human behaviors and our nature affects how we deal with things in everyday life, but also with money itself. It took me a while to read this book because I was like, oh, this book's going to be like thinking fast and slow where they break down like how we think and how it affects all parts of our lives, including our money. But it wasn't too similar. So I was happy about that. It's actually one of my favorite finance books because I think it provides a lot of interesting perspectives that I haven't seen other people write about in their finance books. So I think I read it a few years ago and it's really interesting because I feel like I need to reread it. It is one of those books that you can reread a few times because like the concepts just like you go, oh, that's so interesting. That's so cool. And then you go back into your life and you forget almost like 50% of it. But it is what it is. Did you say it was your favorite finance book? One of my favorites. Interesting. Okay. We'll Mm -hmm. talk about that later. (laughs) I made it so clear that it was one of my favorites because every time I talk about a book now, Sim just looks at me. That's one of the disadvantages of being friends with an author. Go be friends with Morgan. Yeah. He seems like a cool guy. Exactly. This is exactly what happens. (laughs) Go talk to your other author friends. So one of the takeaways that I wanted to talk about today was this concept of luck and risk that Morgan talks about quite early on in the book. And I think it's super interesting how he talks about luck and risk because I actually haven't seen many finance books talk about luck in a lot of people's wealth gains. I think it's almost like a taboo thing that people don't touch on when they talk about these super successful wealthy people and to print it out and put it in a book I'm like (laughs) so you've got my attention the way that he talks about luck and risk in the book he speaks about them as if they're siblings and he talks about Bill Gates early success with computers as one of the most prominent examples in this chapter it's quite early on in the book so it's like chapter two and he says that one in a million high school age students attended the same high school as Bill Gates and he had the combination of cash and foresight to buy a computer. And I think that is quite a different perspective on how people like speak about Bill Gates and how he had the initiative to make that decision in terms of buying a computer. And I think us in general as human beings, it's really easy to convince ourselves that our financial situations and our financial decisions that we make, they're determined entirely by our decision making and actions. And that's not always the case. Like you can sit there and plan for two weeks straight and think you're making a good financial decision, but it actually ends up not being the right decision for you. So you have to account for the role of luck and risk in your decision making and in the way that you were brought up as well. And when he talks about this as the chapters go 
on. He talks about, you know, being cautious about the people you admire and look down upon because those at the top may have been the benefactors of luck, while those at the bottom may have been the victims of risk. And direct quote from the book, he says, but more important is that as we recognize the role of luck in success, the role of risk means that we should forgive ourselves and leave room for understanding when judging failures. I think that is such an important takeaway and I wanted to talk about it because we are way too hard on ourselves from the decisions that we make about money in the past, in the present, and that creates a lot of uncertainty and fear in ourselves for dealing with the future. I think because he talks about luck and the role of luck and the examples that he uses, it kind of just makes you think about people's success Because in my head, I'm like, I can't even conceptualize Bill Gates' wealth, right? And when he talks about it, it kind of brings you down to earth. And you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? It does. And I think if we even speak of it from a GTI perspective, like people often look at us and go, oh, like they've like worked so hard or they've really found like such a great niche. No one was talking about investing education and they found it. And I think, yes, on one hand, I was maybe smart enough to look into it but then also I never discount the fact that when I started the podcast with you in August 2020 that was around the same time that the biggest like bull market really took off and Mm. everyone was talking about investing and it was all over the news and everyone around the world that maybe was never interested in investing suddenly had a keen interest and then alongside there was this thing called Girls That Invest that was going to help them. And I think that was a huge, you know, lucky strike that the brand got. Yeah. And an overarching theme that he talks about with luck and risk is that you shouldn't really focus on individual cases anyway. So people that take GTI as a case study, it is important to understand what people have done, but you're going to be better off in terms of goal setting or if you admire a whole bunch of people is to like study broader patterns because it's really difficult to replicate the outcomes of like successful people but you may be able to like participate in broader patterns if that makes sense so if you notice that a lot of even video content is like here are the top 10 millionaires like habits and what they have in common rather than just being like, here is Bill Gates routine and this is exactly what I'm going to do. We talk a good game about you can't emulate someone's investing portfolio and expect the exact same results, nor should you want to do that. It's the same. I think this principle that he talks about it, you can apply it into so many different situations and not just your money and your finances. Oh, that's such a good point. I Honestly, when I read that part in the book, I was like, oh, I've never thought about it like this because I'm definitely someone that will look into like one person and go, what do they do? What's their schedule? How did that one specific person do it? But you're right. It's more habits and overarching themes. Mm. The second point that was really helpful that I learned from the book, or at least was a good reminder for me, was that it's not the big overarching or like one life changing decision that grows wealth. It's the small little steps that you take and you don't need like a tremendous force to create tremendous results. It's, and I guess it's very cheesy, it's the compound. It's the compounding interest. It's the small little growths that serve for future growths. And you can think of that one through your habits. So for example, working out a little bit every day is going to probably, you know, make you a little bit more sharper mentally and more focused at work, which will then 
can lead to better results. It can also be, you know, the habit of tracking your expenses when you don't have a lot right now compounds into really great financial management as you make more money and you don't fall into lifestyle creep as easily. But one of the biggest examples was Warren Buffett. And if you don't know who Warren Buffett is, he is one of the world's most well-known investors. He's also a billionaire. And everyone talks about like invest like Warren Buffett and Warren Buffett is amazing. We should all be like him. But the truth is his dad was a stockbroker, right? And so Warren Buffett started investing when he was like 10 or 11 years old. And so of course, by the time he's 30, he's going to have a net worth of $1 million because he's had compound interest. If you adjusted that $1 million, because that man is not 30 anymore. (laughs) That's one way to say that he is old. God, I couldn't tell you. What is he, like 90 now? If you adjust that, if he was a 30-year-old now, he's sitting on $9.3 million. And so imagine being 30 years old in this day and age with $9.3 million. Of course, compound interest is going to turn you into a billionaire by the time you're in your 70s, 80s, 90s. And so it's not just that Warren Buffett's fortune is from being a good investor. It's from being a good investor since he was literally, literally a child. And so the main takeaway is one, of course, like don't beat yourself up for success that you don't have. But two, we don't focus on the effects compound interest has because it's so small day to day and it's so small in the next three months, six months, one year, five years. But the effect it has over decades is, you know, paramount. And I forget that. I forget that all the time. I have to remind myself that a lot as well, because when you think about like your daily habits, it's not really the most exciting thing ever. You see a 30 second, like maybe fitness transformation and you're like, oh my gosh, that is so exciting. But you're not seeing that people are putting like hard work in 365 days of the year. And that's not glamorous at all. It really reminds me of like the 1%, like getting 1% better every single day from the book Atomic Habits by James Clear. These notions, they've completely transformed my mindset. So always a good reminder. huh? It really is. I try to remind myself of these things. Like, yes, tracking my expenses right now is not going to exponentially increase my wealth or, you know, going to the gym every single week, a couple times a week is not going to make me have a six pack, but doing these things consistently is better than trying to wait for like the one morning I wake up and go, right, I'm going to be so organized. I'm going to go every single day. I'm going to have a meal plan. Like that's just not how my mind works, unfortunately. Mm. I mean, same. It's kind of rare to have like this really big, exciting goal and then your natural instinct is to break down your day from 8 a.m. to 5 (laughs) p.m. and see how you can achieve the goal. It, It is a skill that is developed over time. A skill that we are working on. That we are working on as two 26-year-olds navigating the world. How many times are you going to mention my age in this episode? I know, I just love doing it. (laughs) Because you always make fun of me for being 26 and being old and being like, oh, Sonia, like, get over it, being 26. And I feel like you're going to do that a lot. So it's making me excited. Wait a second. When did I make fun of you being 26? Anyone go back and listen to like... (laughs) 20 episodes and pick up oh my god you're so old now I'm literally three months older than you I say it like you're wiser you're just taking it the wrong way anyways 
I'm so sorry to those people who are out enjoying like a hot girl walk just and trying to do errands peacefully and we're bickering in your ear right now. Another takeaway I wanted to talk about is leaving room for error. I think this is so important to understand and he again like in the book he talks about mistakes and leaving room for error and why long-term financial planning is really hard to do because people don't plan to not have their plan going according to plan. Does that make sense? Whoa, that sounded like a stroke. Can you say that again? (laughs) (laughs) We're going to get cancelled by the Heart Foundation. (laughs) I'm going to say it one more time. People don't plan to not have their plan go according to plan. Essentially, you need to leave room for error. You need to leave room for mistakes. You can't predict every single outcome. And I think with endurance and resilience, when it comes to your money and problem solving in life, that is built over time. But people don't really take into account like all the psychological impacts of the financial decisions that you make. So for example, just say you have an emergency fund and you've saved a year's worth of income into that fund and then you make the decision to leave your job because you've got this emergency fund and just say it takes you a fair few months to find another job while you're using your emergency fund. People don't take into account how you can see like a third or a quarter of this emergency fund deplete and how that impacts you like emotionally and how it can drain you because you don't plan for like those circumstances. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. It's one of those things where like, I'll give you an example of my own life. I did not think I would need content insurance in my house because I was like, nothing is going to happen. Like, sure, it's not the nicest neighborhood, but I really doubt someone's going to come and break in to steal this like $80 couch or this like $50 TV. Like, there's nothing fancy in this home. And then I didn't expect that the ceiling of my home would fall and ruin all those things anyway. And that having content insurance would have helped with those, you know, pieces of furniture that would be covered but you just don't think these things through and you don't plan them no because people don't understand like what you can technically endure so in terms of saving up for that emergency fund getting content insurance it's not the same or it's not equal to what you can emotionally endure and so the point that he makes in the book is that it's super important to leave room for error and he talks a good game about planning but have the ability to be agile and to replan when need be because as humans Our personality, our life situation, like the circumstances that we're in, it will change and that will change your goals. And a direct quote, you know, room for error lets you endure a range of potential outcomes and endurance lets you stick around long enough to let the odds of benefiting from a low probability outcome fall in your favor. It was one of my biggest takeaways. And it's the reason why I say that I need to reread the book because As someone who has moved to a new country and I've saved for this move, seeing my Canada savings account go down with like furniture that I need, with things that, you know, that you need to buy to be able to live in a new country. Like I really underestimate how long it took for my parents to build a home or our home to what it is now. 
It is incredibly disheartening (laughs) to see a once really full bank account go down to like a quarter of its size in four months, you know? A quarter of its size. That would be so disheartening. Mm. You have to take into account like I had to buy a bed, to buy a mattress. A good bed, by the way. I don't take my sleep lightly, so I did buy a good mattress. Another real life example for you. What's your final takeaway, Sim? The fourth like key takeaway that we got from the book was probably not something that I guess everyone is going through right now, but it's something that everyone that's listening to the podcast will eventually experience. And it's the idea of getting wealthy versus staying wealthy. I think a lot of our listeners are people that are like, look, I'm on my journey to wealth and I want to grow it. And I want to be in a place where I can live the life I want. And that was very much me for a very large number of years. But then being able to stay wealthy is a whole nother beast that like I didn't even think about because I was like, oh, like, you almost think like it will take me so long to get money that you don't even think about, well, what do I do once I have money? How do I stay wealthy? How do I make sure that I don't risk it all or manage my, you know, I don't know, your greed or your risk mitigation or the idea that things can be taken away from you at any point in time. Like you don't want to get too comfortable. Like I don't want to be the kind of person that's like caviar for breakfast every morning. And then one day I'm slapped with like Marmite on toast because I just, you know, spent so much money. And so the idea behind this is that capitalism is hard and being able to hold on to your wealth and staying wealthy takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of money, and takes a lot of planning. There's a stat around the idea that around 60 to 70% of wealth is lost within one generation, like your children, and then 80 to 90% of wealth is lost by your grandchildren. So to be able to hold wealth for yourself and future generations is something very difficult but there are a few things that you can do so the main thing to do is one plan but as Sonia said also be agile and be aware that plans can change you might not always have the wealth that you have and you need to be aware that you just I don't know you you want to be complacent a little bit and enjoy it but you also want to be aware that things can change and so you've got to almost seesaw or be like a pendulum with where the future's going because You can't look at the past and not acknowledge the luck that has happened to get you to where you are. So you can't be like, oh, my one business did super, super well. If it all goes to crap, well, I'll have the same amount of luck again and do another version of GTI, for example. It's like the getting wealthy versus staying wealthy concept. It just reminds me of like lotto winners who Mm. get, instantly get like millions and millions of dollars and something crazy about 70% of lotto winners actually lose their wealth because they don't they don't know what to do like they get so overwhelmed with the money that they have so they'll buy boats they'll buy vehicles like really expensive cars they'll buy like mansions not realizing that you have to have a certain amount of money to upkeep all of these things on a yearly basis. It's just such an interesting concept. And I know I say that a lot, but I genuinely do find it interesting because it just talks to how important it is to have financial literacy and what a privilege that is. Also knowing your values. Yeah. It's like, 
the whole lotto winners situation, it's just so clear from the outside. You're like, oh my goodness, like you've got all this money. Don't go out and buy everything you've ever wanted. Don't act like you'll always have this amount of money. Like it's a big cash injection, but you don't get 28 million every 10 years. Like this is your 28 million for your entire life. And I think it's just easy to get sucked into the rest of it. I remember I was doing a book tour in New York and there was this lovely listener that came and she was like, I wouldn't even know how to act if I had a million dollars. Like, what would I have to wear? How would I have to talk? What would I have to buy? And it's like, we really associate having money with like, okay, now I need to look the part. And it just, it's a downhill spiral. Mm. And then on the flip end of that is not spending anything at all and being scared to spend your money. Like, It's about a balance, you know? What a rich person problem. I have so much (laughs) money, but should I spend it? Should I save it? What's the balance? (laughs) I just have one really important question for you, Sonia. Hit me. When you reach the financial goals that you're after, which is, you know, as everyone on the podcast knows, retiring early, living your best like rich girl life, what is something that you're going to do the same that you've done as a student, as a young person, like when you didn't have as much money compared to now or like, you know, where you're heading in the future? Ooh, that's a really good question and one that I would want you to answer after I give mine. Wow, original. (laughs) I think for me, I'm really proud of the habits that I have been consistent with with my money in terms of like automating my savings, automating my investments, tracking my spending, but also some habits that I picked up from the low buy year. So not really looking at new skincare or makeup until one item's finished and really thinking twice, three times before buying something that I want. I think even with Black Friday weekend, it's so hyped up in this part of the world that I live in now that I made a list of needs and wants. And for some reason, shopping has just been such a turnoff to me like this year, even with the things that I need to buy, because even like with winter boots and coats, like I'm stuck in this analysis paralysis thing that I've just kind of bit the bullet and like bought a boot and bought a coat. So I think that those habits I would definitely keep even when I've reached my financial goals and I've set up these passive streams of income that hopefully bring me a bit of coin year on year on year. But what about you? I would say the one thing that I wouldn't change no matter how much money I had that was a habit that I've had since I was younger is well there's two one I'm just not a big believer in like high restaurants or like fine dining like where you go and get a lot of like really intricate small portions intricate tasting meals like I don't eat to taste flavors I eat to like fill myself up and like for me (laughs) I love food but it is like a need more than a want I have done the fine dining stuff like I've spent the money I've gone on like these beautiful expensive cuisines with my friends because they're really into it and this was in university which is like stupid like why would you spend that kind of money when you didn't even have money and just I don't know it just made me go this is not for me and I am much happier going to like a nice place that costs maybe like at max $30 per head and that's New Zealand dollars so what would that be like USD like $22 per head than a very expensive fine dining experience because I've just never been full and when I'm not full I'm a little bit upset and hangry and then I've paid money so I'm even more upset and that's just not going to change we had two very different answers yeah I never thought of it like that I think with the fine dining stuff it's more of an experience right but some people really obsess over having that experience but for me the older that I get 
if you're in good company, you should be good, you know? Absolutely. I don't know. I just get salty afterwards because I'm like, now I need to go out and buy dessert as well. Because, of, And then you're in an area which is nice, all the dessert's expensive. Oh, I just hate it. <laughs> Do you know one place that we've been to that doesn't leave you hungry at the end of a meal? Where? Applebee's. My gosh. Their portion sizes are out of control. <laughs> I ordered a salad in Applebee's because I wasn't that hungry. And then the salad was like four times the size of my face. And I was like, oh, no. Shookening. I took that home and had it for lunch the next day at the conference. That was crazy. <laughs> Goodness. But yeah, I'm not a big foodie when it comes to like fine dining, but I'm a big foodie with like, like I want to go to the mom and pop stores. Like I want to go to the restaurants that look absolutely shit because their food is just so good. They don't care to like upgrade their decor. Tips to finding a good restaurant. Plastic chairs. Yes. Really mismatched interior. Like random photos of family on the wall. A little peel on the wall doesn't hurt anyone. Maybe a little bit of bubbling as well. Like if the paint had a little bit of water behind it. Why would you bother fixing the water when you're constantly bombarded with like an overbooked restaurant because there's so many people coming? Like that's how I see it. Mm. Good family-owned restaurants. Anyway, this feels like a really good place to wrap up. Good restaurants are hard to find, but they're very important. Let's support our local economy. But when it comes to the four things that we love about the psychology of money, the four main takeaways is that you've got to consider luck and risk, not just one or the other. You've got to consider the effect of compounding interest and that Warren Buffett was not just a superstar. He started investing when he was 10. You've got to consider leaving room for error and you've got to consider getting wealthy versus staying wealthy. Now, we'll leave you there, but if you want more Girls That Invest, please follow us on Instagram, check out our Facebook group, and if you enjoy this episode, please share it on your story and tag us. We absolutely love it when we see where you're listening to us. We love seeing you on your hot girl walks, when you're cleaning your home. It's just such a fun experience, and we'll see you next week. Until next time, Sonia. Till next time, Sim. Bye. Bye. Before we go, thank you again to HSBC for not only powering this episode, but for the rest of the season. Don't forget to check out the link in the description to find out more. And as always, to finish off with our disclaimer, Girls That Invest does not provide personalized investing advice for your individual needs. We are not financial advisors. The advice from Girls That Invest exists for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment or financial decision. Advice from Girls That Invest is general in nature and does not consider individual circumstances. Always do your research and please use your due diligence.